Well, yesterday's papers ran one of those uh, usual pre-Christmas pieces, a bunch of celebrities telling us what Christmas means to them, Uh, sort of writers and and philosophers and actors explaining what Christmas is all about. And uh, for many of them, and I guess for many of us, Christmas is all about the children, that sort of mounting excitement that children do best, the excitement that kind of reaches its crescendo on a sleepless Christmas Eve, you know, the hourly request to shattered parents, is it time to get up yet? Doubtless for Roman and Charlie, that's all to come, but there's something to look forward to. And of course, even without children, for some people, Christmas is all about family. The annual occasion when you wheel out that eccentric, distant cousin, kind of person who can always be relied on to say something so outrageous over lunch that everyone's kind of choking on their Christmas pudding. Or I guess Christmas is all about presents. Just as New Year is all about, this is not just a queue, this is an endless and exhausting Marks and Spencers returns queue. You know, that kind of chaos after Christmas when you can return all that Christmas bric-a-brac you don't want. Or I guess Christmas is all about feasting. Until that is, you've, you've done the Christmas curry and you've done the kind of turkey risotto and you've done the turkey soup and you think you never want to see a turkey again as long as you live. But then in the midst of all that kind of tired children and family feuding, unwanted gifts and overeating, we Christians have a rather irritating tendency to get all holier than thou and start reminding everyone that the real meaning of Christmas is religious. Which is why Matthew 3 is such a surprise. According to Matthew 3, Christmas is about repentance, not religion, because God's judgment is real. Now, the arrival of God's king in a feeding trough on the first Christmas was not exactly what people were expecting. It's true that his birth was announced by a heavenly choir, but afterwards heaven went quiet and Jesus all but disappeared from the public stage. But after 30 years of relative obscurity, Jesus is about to burst on the scene again in Matthew 3. And yet just before his ministry begins, public attention is captured by an obscure and rather eccentric desert preacher, John the Baptist. A preacher who, if you look at verse 5, a preacher whose popularity rivaled an X-factor audition. Verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. Must have been quite a crowd. And yet you read what happens here, and in many ways it's hard to understand why John the Baptist was so phenomenally popular. It's true that there were echoes of greatness in his attire, verse 4. His clothes were made of a camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and so perhaps some people suspected that he was another Elijah, the great prophet from Israel's past. And yet his message was incredibly blunt and uncompromising. You read verse 2, and it's clear that John the Baptist hadn't attended the Peter Mandelson School of Spin. Now, he had no idea how to bury bad news. Verse 2, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Admit you've blown it before God. Stop living and thinking as if he isn't in charge of the world. Stop living and thinking as if he isn't in charge of your life. 
Because the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God is nearer than you think God's king is about to arrive. See, that's not the kind of message that I think any of us really want to hear, is it? Who who wants to be told that the way you're thinking and living without any serious reference to God is wrong and you need to admit it and sort your life out? Who wants to be told that? And yet the response amongst John's first listeners was quite remarkable, verse 6. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. See, it seems that there was something compelling, something persuasive, something credible about the blunt warnings of this unconventional desert preacher. His stark message seemed to awaken all sorts of troubling questions in the hearts and minds of his first listeners. What if God is truly there? The God who made me and owns me and rules me. What if God is coming in real history as king to weigh my life in the balance? What will be the verdicts of divine scrutiny for all that I have done and shouldn't and all that I should have done and haven't? It's it's a poor analogy, but I, I remember the kind of things we used to get up to in pottery at school when the rightful authority was absent from the classroom. If the teacher left the room for a few minutes, chaos descended and attention turned from the clay masterpieces that we were moulding in our hands to the game of who can throw a piece of clay and get it to stick closest to the centre of the classroom clock. And on one occasion, the the teacher was absent for some considerable time, so we were lulled into a, a false sense of security. We could do what we want. We were having a great time. Until that terrible moment when the classroom door finally and inevitably opened. What do you say when the teacher suddenly appears? Suddenly, whatever excuses you were thinking of making looked ridiculous when a piece of clay was just leaving your raised, outstretched arm towards the wall, or if you were particularly unlucky, towards the teacher. You see, there was something compelling and credible and persuasive about John's message. He touched a nerve amongst his listeners. He said, repent. Admit you've blown it before God. Stop living and thinking as if God isn't in charge of the world. Stop living and thinking as if God isn't in charge of your life because the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God is nearer than you think, for God's king is about to arrive. So the people's response is striking, verse 6. Not denying their sin, not excusing their sin, but confessing their sins. The people were baptised. So there was, it seems, a kind of religious revival in the desert of Judea and, unsurprisingly, the religious establishment arrived to muscle in on the action. It's always the way, isn't it? You know, the credit crunch hits, more people are supposedly going to church and smug vicars are everywhere lamenting the bankruptcy of materialism and the need for a bit of religion. Well, the religious establishment pitch up at John's open-air rally and if they were expecting a warm welcome, they were in for a bit of a surprise. 
Verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, the arrival of God's king is about repentance, not religion, because God's judgment is real. As we think about preparing for Christmas, all of us, whether we consider ourselves to be churchgoers or not, all of us, I think, are tempted to imagine that Christmas is about religion and not repentance. Why? Because we're not really persuaded that the king who came as a baby will one day return as our judge. Let me give you three reasons why I think we are tempted to discount the reality of God's judgment. Number one, we persuade ourselves that God's judgment just isn't true. Now, I have to say, I think it's unlikely that this was an objection for John's first listeners or Matthew's first readers. Whatever its present renaissance, atheism has been a minority view throughout history. Matthew's readers were doubtless convinced that the universe really was ruled and not random. Morality was a divine reality, not a human construct. And whether it made any difference or not in their lives, there would have at least been a formal acknowledgement that one day the God who is there would bring justice to his world. Of course, the reality for us is that modern scepticism and unbelief has reduced notions of God's judgment to a joke. Talk of judgment and people imagine the kind of religious lunatic with his sandwich board warning that the end is nigh. Talk about judgment seriously. Well, then you're accused of religious scaremongering and intolerance. Now, of course, if... If Christmas is religious myth, then all talk of God's ruling king is complete and utter nonsense. But if God's king really did come 2,000 years ago, such that he was heard and seen and touched, as John puts it, if that's true, then the promise of his return as judge becomes an inescapable, if troubling, reality. I remember a few years back I was doing a wedding interview with a delightful couple and uh, I was talking during the interview about um, Christianity being true, really true. And uh, the guy who was getting married stopped me um, later on in the conversation and he said, you know when you were talking about Christianity being true, what did you mean? You see, for him, as for a lot of people, Christianity is something that is useful, not true. But if Christianity fundamentally isn't based on things that really happened in time, space, history, then the question is not of its usefulness, it's just complete and utter nonsense. Now, of course, no one's pretending that this is a a comfortable topic of conversation. If I'm honest, my heart sank when I realised the passage that had been set for me today. 
Now, why did I get this passage? But the fact that we find something unpleasant doesn't mean it isn't true. Imagine, 18 months ago, at the height of the property boom, when we bought our house, imagine some lone Fleet Street prophet warning people that in less than 18 months we would face an unprecedented financial meltdown. How easy would it have been to dismiss him and to ridicule him, to ignore him? And yet, here we are, enduring the worst global recession in living memory, and every time Robert Peston appears on the BBC, your heart sinks. You think it's more bad news. See, the fact that we find something unpleasant doesn't mean it isn't true. Christmas is about repentance, not religion. Because God's judgment is real. Three reasons why we discount the reality of God's judgment. Number one, we persuade ourselves that God's judgment isn't true. Number two, we persuade ourselves that God's judgment isn't universal. Now this was a problem, I think, for some of John's first listeners, just as it is often a problem for us. It's the, you know, I don't need to repent because judgment is really only for bad people. That kind of idea. It's usually accompanied with the line, you know, I'm not saying that I'm perfect, I'm just not as bad as him or or her or them. Which is why John's words in verse 7 are so shocking. Doubtless the religious establishment had more than its fair share of hypocrites then as it does now, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have been educated and respectable and moral, the kind of people who live in S10 perhaps. And John, having clearly forgotten to read How to Win Friends and Influence People, John says to them, verse 7, You brood of vipers. You do think John's not the sort of person you want to invite around for a dinner party, do you? You know, he's the sort of person who says blunt, provocative, uncharitable things, and suddenly the most interesting thing in the world is folding your after-eight wrapper, waiting for that uncomfortable silence to disappear. So why is he so blunt? Because he recognises that his listeners are making a dangerous assumption. They're presuming that it's other people that need to repent, and they don't. And so John's words are a challenge. Wake up. Wake up and smell the coffee. Of course, they talked the talk, but they didn't, it seemed, walk the talk. Repentance was espoused, but it wasn't lived And there was the presumption that historical privilege exempted them from the rather uncomfortable notion of judgment. And so John's message is unflinching. Verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree... In other words, there are no exceptions. Judgment is universal. Everyone needs to repent. Every tree that does not produce fruit. In other words, every tree that doesn't produce the fruit of genuine repentance will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's very easy to think that it's only other people that need to repent, the really bad people. But John says it's everybody. I remember a few years back reading Nick Hornby's book how to be good and uh, katie carr is one of the main characters in the book and she's a doctor 
And uh, at one point in the book, she's reflecting on the need and the difficulty of being good. And uh, she's drawn up a kind of list of all the things that she thinks she's done wrong in her life. And she says this, I I don't wish to be melodramatic. I know I've not lived a bad life, but nor do I think that this crime sheet amounts to nothing. Believe me, it amounts to something. Look at it. Adultery. The casual exploitation of friends. Disrespect for parents who have done nothing apart from attempts to stay close to me. I mean, that's two of the Ten Commandments broken already. When I look at my sins, and if I think they're sins, then they are sins. I can see the appeal of born-again Christianity. I suspect that it's not the Christianity that is so alluring. It's the rebirth. Because who wouldn't want to start all over again? That's quite a telling comment, isn't it? Who wouldn't want to start all over again? As we approach Christmas, I guess many of us will be inviting friends to carol services, carols by candlelight next Sunday, Christmas meals, events that we hope will help people to hear more of the message of Jesus so that they will follow him for themselves. But for those of us who are regulars, Beware the hypocrisy that imagines they need to repent and we don't. See, as John the Baptist might put it to us, do not think you can say to yourselves, we've been members of Christ Church Forward for years. We've taught in the Sunday school. We've served on the PCC. No. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just talk about it. Live it. Christmas is about repentance, not religion, because God's judgment is real. Three reasons why we discount the reality of God's judgment. One, we persuade ourselves that it isn't true. Two, we persuade ourselves that it isn't universal. Three, we persuade ourselves that God's judgment is not near. It's the, well, you know, perhaps I do need to repent. I I just don't need to repent yet. That kind of comment. Like foolish boys in a pottery class, we delude ourselves into thinking that the teacher won't be back in a few more minutes. For when it comes to repentance, there is always a bit more time. Truth is, I think most of us, myself included, most of us are capable of elevating procrastination to an art form. It's the DIY job that's always on the to-do list but never on the done list. Why is it that some jobs never get done until you put the house on the market and sell it? I remember when we moved out one of the houses that we own. It was fantastic when we left it. Just when we were living in it, it was a problem. Or it's the pile of paper in the kitchen. You know that paper pile that never stops growing and you keep meaning to sort out? Or I have to say, if you're a bloke, it's the the Christmas present for your girlfriend or wife that you will eventually get round to buying, but just not yet, which is why, of course, Meadowhall is awash with bewildered, dazed and panicking men on Christmas Eve. The truth is that many of us are capable of elevating procrastination to an art form, and when it comes to repentance, there is always a bit more time. 
Maybe judgment is true. Maybe judgment is universal. It's just not yet. I don't know about you, but I think reading the Bible is often a very unsettling experience. So you come to Matthew 3 for a few minutes on a Sunday morning, and before the words are lost in the busyness of the day, and lost in the busyness of the week, and lost in the busyness of Christmas, before the words are lost, you begin to wonder, what if judgment is true? What if God's king really did come 2,000 years ago as a baby, and that one day he will come back as our judge? And what if judgment is universal? So repentance isn't just important for other people. It's necessary for all people, and that includes me. It's hardly surprising when we're faced with those sort of unsettling questions. Most of us take refuge in the fact that God's real and universal judgment is not yet. For so long as judgment isn't imminent, we don't have to worry much about repentance. And then you read verse 10. And John says that, as a conclusion, is both foolish and mistaken. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is now already in his hand. truth is it is just as easy for those of us who say we are committed followers of Jesus to think we don't need to repent as it is for those who rarely darken the door of a church. Believers can cherish sin just as much as unbelievers can ignore sin. For believers, for those who say they're committed to Christ, Compromise and complacency about sin are dangerous things to tolerate and yet I suspect we are more careless and insensitive about sin when we imagine that God's judgment is not imminent. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we would do well to remember that as we celebrate the coming of God's King at Christmas, we would do well to remember that Christmas is about repentance. The need to admit that we've blown it before God and stop living and thinking as if he isn't in charge of my life because the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, is nearer than we think. And you know, if believers are capable of cherishing sin, unbelievers are capable of ignoring sin. But ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. I'm always amazed how many of my patients confess I thought there was a problem with my tooth, but I hope that if I ignored it, it will go away. Ignoring a problem, ignoring our sin, excusing our sin doesn't make it any less a problem. Three reasons why we discount the reality of God's judgment, because we persuade ourselves it isn't true, we persuade ourselves it isn't universal, we persuade ourselves that it isn't near. And yet there's one final thing to say about this disturbing passage. Because it's easy to imagine that when John calls people to repent, he's telling people, you know, turn over a new leaf and try and be a better person. The difficulty is our problem of rejecting God's rule needs more than turning over a new leaf. It needs the gift of a new nature. Which is why, in the end, John directs our gaze somewhere else, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Amazing to realize that this, the most popular preacher for centuries, this preacher saw his life's work was to point people to someone else. Someone far greater than him. Someone so great that John doesn't even think he's fit to carry his sandals or or lick his boots, as we might say. Someone who is not only a great judge, but a great saviour. There's a remarkable statue of John the Baptist in Florence, and what makes it so clearly John the Baptist is a scrawny, outstretched arm and a long, pointing finger. In bronze, just as in history, John the Baptist says, Look, not at me, look at him. For yes, Jesus will come as judge. He will baptize with fire, verse 11. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, verse 12. But he will also baptize with the Holy Spirit, verse 11. He will gather up his wheat into his barn. Which is why Christmas is good news of great joy for all people. As Isaiah put it in our first reading, here there is comfort because the God who will one day come as our judge has come first of all as our saviour. Here, in this baby who lived and died, our sin has been paid for so that we might escape, as John puts it, the coming wrath. John Newton was a famous 18th century captain of one of those infamous slave ships. And of course his story is one of genuine repentance as he turned his life on the way he had been living and admitted that to God. He wrote that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And towards the end of his life, when he was 82, he said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. What's Christmas all about? It's about lots of things, good things, things that God made that are to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving, children and family and presents and feasting. Is Christmas about religion? Well, it depends what you mean by religion. The problem with a lot of religion is it obscures reality in moralism and sentiment and myth. As we prepare for Christmas to celebrate the arrival of God's King, getting rid of religion is probably the best thing that we can do. Get rid of Christmas religion and it will probably help us to see life as it really is. It will help us to see that Christmas is about real repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. Because God's judgment is true, it's universal, and it's near.